Today's episode is a fantastic conversation with Denise Cooper. She specializes in executive coaching and leadership training with over 25 years of experience in the world of business. She shares some very relatable stories with learnings that you can definitely take away and apply. We discussed the realities of trust in the workplace, what it means to be human, how to look at your own values, and the topic of redemption. All of that and more is ahead, so buckle up and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. And we believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. Hello, I'm your host, Jeff Ma, and I am joined today by my co-host, Chris Petrie. Hey, Chris, how is it going? Doing great. Awesome. And as you may or may not know, we are co-authors of the book by the same name, Love is a Business Strategy. And each episode here on the podcast, we like to dive into a different element of business or strategy uh, or meet somebody new and test our theory of love against it. Today, our guest is the founder of Remarkable Leadership Lessons. She's an executive coach, a leadership trainer, a speaker. She has a podcast. She's an expert in neuroleadership, behavioral and psychological principles. The list goes on and on, and I'm hoping to be able to talk about all of that. Welcome to the show, Denise Cooper. How are you? I am fabulous and getting better. What can I tell you? <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Denise, we um, always have to start with an icebre icebreaker. No matter how awkward it is, we still do it. We just are very stubborn that way. Um, so, I, but one thing we do do differently than we that's different from how it used to be is that we make um, Chris go first, and then you'll get the same question. So it's less it's less difficult for you. Uh, Chris, the question the icebreaker today is: If you could donate a million dollars to any charity, what cause would you choose? So for me, the cause that I would choose is domestic violence and helping women and victims of domestic violence get on their feet um, and have a safe place to return or get, you know, all the needs met that they have, um, especially if they feel like their um, oppressor has been sort of controlling everything about their lives. I know that sometimes that's the reason why um, people stay in those relationships. And so that would be the charity that I would give to first and foremost. Thank you. Denise, same question. If you could donate a million dollars to any charity, what cause would you choose? Hmm. I'm not sure I know the name of one, but I, I would give it all to reforming education. Hmm. I think we have got to rethink education in this country um, so that it's much more equitable, but it also allows parents to actually be involved in the educational process of their children. Oh, I love that. That's I agree. Yeah, hundred percent. Denise, I want to dive into this. I know I, I rambled off one of like some of the many things you're you're doing, but I want to give you a chance to kind of introduce yourself, if you could, just kind of tell us about yourself and where your passions are and why you're here. Oh, passion is easy. Um, I think that the we are at a at a point in time where we really have to rethink what um, the workplace is. You can be all about profit or you can be all about passion and people you can make a lot of money in each way but i think the idea of us only thinking about profit and people as widgets and assets etc 
it's just leading us down the wrong way. Hence why I'm so interested in children because I think ultimately getting them educated and thinking about things in a different way is how we're going to really see it um, because the rest of us are just set in our ways and I'm not sure that um, we're willing to take the hard, make the hard choices to bring equity, inclusion, and love into the workplace. So that's what I'm really passionate about. Um, now, my background, 25 years that I admit to, because I just don't look like I'm older than that, um, <laughs> in HR. And I've done everything from been working for labor unions all the way through to the chief human resources officer. So I've been actually been on both sides. I've been an employee advocate, like for real, with a labor union, several labor unions, actually. And then now I've been uh, on the other side where I've worked specifically in how do we change the workplace and how do we dismantle the systemic issues that the way we think about HR, human resources has been. As you know, we talked offline that, you know, big push of HR is really from a paralegal point of view, make that English. <laughs> that means that they are, HR is there to keep managers out of jail. That Those orange shoots just don't make it. <laughs> but what that does is it keeps an imbalance of power and it keeps people um, from feeling like they belong and they have a, a role in the workplace at all. And so I started this work because I had to take care of my parents and was the time it was tough to find a company that would live with my philosophies. And uh, what I've been doing is really pushing managers and leaders, executives in particular, um, to change the way they think about the workplace and change the way that they lead. Um, and to lead from a place of if people are truly our most important asset, what does that actually mean when we have to behave? What are our expectations? How do we have accountability conversations that are very different than, you know, top down command and control do as I say? Yeah. No, this is um, really interesting. And I, I love this um, sort of how this lived experience of yours turned into a passion, turned into a business, turned into sort of the ability to touch lives and executives and humans all over the work, all over the world and all over the workplace. And so I'm curious to know, like when it comes to your, your experiences working with different executives, working with folks that are, are saying that they want their employees to be the greatest asset, but could be doing the exact opposite when it comes to decisions, behaviors, et cetera. What do you find to be the biggest hurdle or the biggest, I don't wanna say pushback, but the biggest obstacle that they have to overcome um, when it comes to sort of aligning those, those words with their behaviors and, and decisions? Um, it's a couple of things, Chris. Okay. The first thing is, is that they've been taught bad habits. If you mm -hmm. read the books, if you kind of go through some of the things, and, and I have a book too that tr I try <laughs> to have a different voice in it. But if you mm -hmm. read most of the books, it's really about, you know, set the goal, communicate the goal, set some measurements in place. And then if they don't meet the measurements, figure out how to get them out of the office kind of thing. And so it's almost, it's built on this robotic uh, mechanistic mm -hmm. philosophy. And that's what they've been taught. Most mm -hmm. managers, if they went to school and got an MBA or got a BA or started a business, they're just taking old habits that at one time may or may not, we can debate whether it ever worked, <laughs> um, but they took what has been taught to them and they just bring it into the new place and they don't really rethink it. Um, and so that's the first thing is, is they've just been taught some bad habits. The other piece of it is, is that for the most part, 
we don't spend a lot of time understanding who we are and, and mm -hmm. the impact of who we are on other individuals. I often say intention is invisible, but everyone judges us by our behavior. And then mm -hmm. they take our behavior and assign their attention, intention to what they think they, that our behavior is communicating to them. Most of us walk around thinking my good heart shows on my sleeve and you just, you know, hey, I'm a good person. You know, <laughs> if I made a mistake, forgive me, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the second reason. And then the third reason is um, we've, we're now at a time where we have stripped out so much in organizations, that whole lean and mean philosophy we've been on for the last 20 years, mm -hmm. that we do not have room in organizations for growth, learning, and making mistakes. And so because we, if, if you can't have room to risk doing something wrong, then you can't have room to learn. And so that yeah. right there takes you into the series of, I don't want people who don't know the job. I want people who know the job, or at least that's how we think about it. We went through a whole plug and play. If you've got the skills, you've got the expertise, let's just stick you in there. Um, and what that's done is it's created um, another um, tagline, we're a learning organization. Mm -hmm. But from an operational point of view, a systemic point of view, you can't do it if, you're, if you don't allow people to make mistakes and you have enough cushion, cushion for people to actually learn. Yep. Um, it reminds me of, uh, we have a um, peer, Jeff and I, his name is Nathan, and his daughter is in school, and she comes home and she comes up with, like, you know, shares all the, like, the, the greatest things that her teacher says, and, you know, one of the latest was, mistakes are evidence of effort, <laughs> right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so, like, whenever, <laughs> whenever someone calls out a mistake or whatever, it's like, well, it's just evidence of effort. So that became, like, our, our team mantra at one point, where we just said, like, we made a mistake, but it's an evidence of effort. Um, but it is one of those things where you have to recondition your mind, right? And sometimes going to those little childhood quips does help you sort of recenter, like, wait, but actually that is true, yes. right? It I would rather have evidence of effort than paralysis right. or indecision, right? right? Or those things where you're not taking any shots. Mm -hmm. So no, I, I completely resonate with that, that learning organization mantra that people are trying to say, but deep down in the organization, probably not the case, especially mm -hmm. when you look at performance management systems that are erected, when you look at um, the way that decisions are made on uh, promotions, um, chances are people are not getting promoted because they they showed failure. Mm -hmm. right. Denise, I, I, what you're saying super resonates with me and I think we're seeing it ourselves time and time again in organizations that we, we, we enter with all the right goals and intentions and even written values and mission statements. But um, you're right, like it's, it's kind of this ingrained um, kind of inescapable mm -hmm. environment that has been built over time. And, and it's, just, it's just pervasive into every process and tool and every, uh, just it's, it's part of the culture that's just completely taken you know, hold of what I would say is basically general corporate America mm -hmm. overall. Uh, suffers from this. So mm -hmm. what is, what is your, from your perspective, kind of the way out, right? How do we, um, I believe in our talk offline, you said, you know, you don't see much discussion around dismantling these systems and, and who's and who owns dismantling the systems. And I really want to hear your perspective on how we get out of this problem. Well, it, um, so the way we get out of the problem is, is that we really start figuring out and saying, speaking 
um, truth about who owns the system, as you mentioned. And the people who own the system are actually employees and the managers. Put the managers as employees first. They are the ones that have to come up with the agreements, the boundaries, um, what accountability looks like between them. Because you can't have people making mistakes over and over. And I get that, right? But the reason people generally are making mistakes, if, if that's such a thing, is because the, we aren't communicating good boundaries of what, where you can go, what you can do, what's in your power, what's not in your power. And until employees actually begin to say, I have a role here, I belong here, I'm a, part, I'm a partner in creating the success of this organization, it's tough to break that kind of hierarchical command and control. Now, there is a difference between the role you play so you might have a role as a manager that says that you manage these resources, you have to come up with these business outcomes, you have to manage um, money, time, people, products, services, those kinds of things. And that, that role gives you decision-making power. So you make decisions around those kinds of things. Being, um, being responsible because of the role you have just means that from a hierarchical thinking of, of how decisions come out, you have responsibility for making the decisions. But the co-creation of how that shows up in your organization is just that. Employees implement that. So you got to get them involved. You got to get them so that they think. You got to tell them, hey, for your role, this is what you do. Uh, go for it. That kind of thing. And so let me, let me kind of take it out of the world of theory, if you don't mind. And put it like in a real life thing. So one of the things that uh, one of the clients I had a few years ago, he came into an organization and he was project manager. He was over the whole company's project management office. He was looking to hire some people, hired the HR came to him and said, hey, you know, we've got some great candidates from the outside, but we really want to give somebody on the inside a chance. But they failed to tell him was that this young lady was um, not considered um, a team player and that she wasn't really skilled for the role that she was in. So he finds this out a couple months as they've gone into it when the meetings are going such that she's supposed to help people make the change, um, help people figure out um, you know, what are the deliverables? When are they going to be done? Who does what, et cetera. And people would get in the meeting and they would say, yeah, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. The deadlines would come by. Guess what? Nobody's doing it. So now this, this manager, um, he, he's stuck between a rock and a hard spot. Does he write her up because she's not performing? Or does he step back and say that my, my belief is, is that we need to tell her what's going right in, and what she needs to do to get back on a path of success. And so our coaching together was really about how do you have this conversation with her? Because she was angry and she had every right to be angry. She's been with this, she had been with this company seven years. No one told her that she was failing. So the new guy, now is stuck with telling her she's failing. Well, she was angry. She wasn't in this game. She felt betrayed the whole time. And he had to work through, bring his humanity to work to help her understand that feedback is not negative. The fact that you've been failing doesn't mean that you're gonna continue failing in the future. 
But in addition, the other thing we've talked about is, is that you've got to create an environment which she can have um, redemption. So he went around and he spoke to everyone on the team, the managers above those people on the team and said, look, it's not okay that your people lie. They get in these meetings, they say they're going to do stuff, then they blow her off. That's not okay. And you have to hold them accountable for their word. Got agreement with them, then helped her, coached her on how to set the expectations, how to make the project plan work for them, and also put some measurements because change happens. And, uh, if, and one of the things I say is, if you're not getting people screaming about the change, they're not engaged in the change because we don't like change. And so she, she had to learn that just because people were complaining about the change wasn't a bad thing. It was actually a symbol that they are engaging in the change. Their frustration about it was a way for her, an opportunity for her to up-level her skills and to make the process work better for them. I'm happy to say, obviously, over the eight months, nine months that they were there, the two of them got to be friends. She learned to up-level her skills and she he helped her change the perception, her reputation, her brand, whatever you want to call it, in the organization from someone who was just mean and forceful and not engaged and not skilled properly to somebody who was really good at what she did. Does that help explain kind of both the theory and how it works in action? Mm -hmm. Yes. No, that was very helpful. I always love the practical. I think it does give people a sense of like, how does it like actually work out? I think one of the things that sort of the the believers and advocates of this space often get is that we speak conceptually and theoretically more than we speak practically. Um, so no, it always helps. And I think that you used a word that I really want to sort of dig deeper into, which is creating an environment of redemption. Because um, our word is forgiveness, right? Or, you know, unforgiveness if it's not there. Um, and I think that many organizations don't use those words often enough. Um, and that's where reputations form and they can't change. That's where the belief that people don't change sort of can be rooted in is when there's not that environment of redemption. So I love that word. And I'm, I'm curious now, when it comes to redemption and creating environments of redemption, what have you learned or what have you come across in your various client situations or even your own personal life um, away from that one example that you just shared? Well, um, I choose, chose redemption because you're right. Most of the time mm -hmm. we talk about forgiveness, mm -hmm. but people have a kind of an interesting relationship with forgiveness. Mm -hmm. It's really, I said, I saw, I'm sorry. And then yeah. you kind of go back to doing whatever you were doing, but I said, I was sorry. Yeah. Well, redemption means motion, gives you action mm -hmm. to change what you have done in the past. And so mm -hmm. another example is um, recently I was talking to a young lady, um, African-American woman who had been over the um, DEI program for the company. And another person who was of Asian descent and her got into a big argument. And it was over mm -hmm. data, the interpretation of the data. Well, her style is not an empathetic communicating style. Fact, 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 fact. The style of communication of the other young lady, the Asian young lady, was more emotional and needed to mm. hear the emotional that, that I hear you, I understand you, it's going well, etc. The two of them weren't, were at odds because their communication style wasn't there. Long story short, 
she, the, my client, who was the black female, decided to get off the committee. Everyone was looking and talking about, yeah, you know, what happened. You know, the back channeling that often goes when mm -hmm. who said, yeah. she said, they said, mm -hmm. who won, who didn't win, et cetera, et cetera. HR got involved in it. And suddenly they wanted to make it a, um, uh, a investigation on discrimination and putting down people, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I coached her to do was, is to simply say, you need to decide whether this is something you want to file a charge against or not. Because they had taken her off the committee without asking her, without doing a full investigation about it, none of those things. And if they, mm -hmm. and I, as I told her, if you could just simply talk to this young lady and you guys work it out from a trust point of view, it would have worked. But we had to get past HR because they wanted to file a charge. They wanted to make it a big, hairy deal. And the point that I was helping her understand is first, you have to say that just because you disagreed with someone, don't take it personal. And that you have to communicate to the other young lady that because we don't agree on this point doesn't mean that we're at odds at each other. And so what she went and did was have a cup of coffee with this young lady. They, yes, it was not an easy conversation. I'm making it sound a lot easier than when you're in it and you're sweating about it and you're feeling like if I say something wrong or this person isn't going to believe me or they're not going to hear me and your stomach is knotted up and you're just kind of like, oh, I'm going to say the wrong words. I mean, so both of them were sitting there in this piece, but the process of going through, can we find a place where we can trust each other first, that I'm not here to do you harm I'm here to figure out a way that we can work together and have that conversation led to the fact that the two of them could forgive each other for having a communication style that was different, that they may have said things that the other interpreted differently because we all come to the place with our own intentions, right? Intentions invisible, behavior is what we judge people on. And from that place, they were able to find a way in which they could work together. Hmm. Pushing HR out of the side, you all get out of this, let us hmm. figure out how to make this work. Because we have to hmm. learn how to communicate with each other, to listen to each other, mm -hmm. and to ask questions that sometimes are quite insensitive. Yes. Hmm. Yep. yep. And I think, you know, that scenario typically is what, happen is what happens in the early stages of some company or organization starting the work of DEI, mm -hmm. right? Because you have people who bring their core beliefs and sort of their communication styles and their sort of mindsets and perspectives and lived experiences to the table. And now we're starting in these very vulnerable, often uncomfortable, you know, conversations or trying to sort of figure out some real difficult solutions, many of which will impact systems. And there are going to be those types of conflicts and sometimes deeper, sometimes bigger, sometimes, you know, between mm -hmm. dynamics of power. Sometimes it's, it's not always sort of um, <clears throat> just about race or those types of topics. So I think that that scenario is something that many organizations who are coming into DEI should understand is a part of the process. And that's typically where some companies disengage or stop and say like, oh, oh, too uncomfortable. We're not gonna do that. Like, no, we can't do that. Like, this is why we shouldn't have started this. We were fine before. Our culture was great. You know, everything was hidden. <laughs> and if people had issues, they took it at home. We don't like, why are we doing this? We're breaking something that was working, right? And you start getting into that situation. 
Um, but I'm glad that those um, two women were able to work that out um, and also hopefully show the committee uh, <coughs> and others in that organization, how do you work past differences of opinion, ideological differences, communication differences, style differences, et cetera. Um, and so that was, that's a really cool sort of example. That's a good point because too often, and in, even in this situation and in others, the first thing we mm -hmm. do is look for the reasons why the two people have differences. Yeah. And it's very easy to say it's their background, it's this, and we're trying to, you know, figure this out versus mm -hmm. the first thing we ought to think about is both of us are human, no one. Mm -hmm. And I don't care, even if you're a sociopath or a narcissist, nobody wakes up in the morning to say, I'm going to be a butthead and I'm going to be, I'm going to fail. It just doesn't yeah. happen. Okay? Yeah. What happens is, yeah. is the way we choose to behave and implement causes these breakages in the relationship. And it starts yeah. with us not understanding how to communicate with each other from a place of trust. <laughs> if, I, if I say that you truly are a human being, and that being a human being and living humanity is also about, we're not gonna be perfect. We can be excellent, but we cannot be mm -hmm. perfect. It by nature mm -hmm. says that we're not gonna do it all well. But if mm -hmm. I don't give you space to be able to say, hey, Denise, it didn't go over well. I, I heard what you said, but it didn't go over well. And I have to be able to take a deep breath and, and, not know, and know that you're giving me feedback you are not judging me. You're mm -hmm. just giving me feedback. I need to lean in a little bit and say, what didn't go well? Yeah. So that we can actually talk about mm -hmm. your perception mm -hmm. because I can't read your mind. And I tell my clients, I tell everybody, tell every, all your listeners, mm -hmm. stop acting like we can read each other's minds. Because <laughs> okay? we can't. The only yeah. way you're going to know what a person's thinking is you have to breathe and ask the question. Tell me what you meant. Tell me your perspective. I invite mm -hmm. you to give me feedback. Yeah, I, I love the um, example you just used earlier with these two women. And, and what I'm really latching on to is that just that mental, mental picture of, of these two women sitting at a coffee table, across table from each other. Um, just that moment. I think um, that's something that we... Um, love is a business strategy and what we talk about all the time. Um, that's a critical moment right there. Like that, mm -hmm. that uncomfortability you were talking about is the key to unlocking so much. And that, that, that's like the fork in the road right there. I think everyone can relate to that. I think when you picture, maybe we haven't sat at a coffee table, but we've been in that, that performance review or that one-on-one -on -one or just that moment, even in a group setting where, there's this critical kind of awkwardness, this uncomfortableness. And I think I've been on both sides of that, that equation where if you can take the fork in the road to the, to the one way that you say, hey, this is how you made me feel, but I want to know what you're coming from and, you know, trying to like open that up. What, what's on the other side of that is, is, you know, so much possibility. But I've also been in those conversations where that same uncomfortable uncomfortability kind of leads us to immediately put our guards up, kind of morph into something we're not in the moment and say, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm good. Oh, no, that was nothing. Oh, I was just kidding. Oh, you're kidding. Okay, cool. And you leave kind of feeling good about yourself, but kind of like, you know, it, it, just sweeping it under the rug. And I think, I think too often these moments happen in our lives 
whether we like we don't even realize it as they're happening because it was just another meeting or it was just another conversation and, and we just kind of dealt with it the way that made sense like that just that we solved the problem and i don't think people often enough realize that you're just missing these critical moments over and over to actually develop a relationship or move towards something really great because on the other side of being able to be honest and, and, and truthful and, and open and really uncomfortable with each other is that ability to like the next time something happens, the next time something comes up, you skip all the other steps and you go, you, the two of you or the group of you go straight to the solution, go straight to, oh, I know how this makes you feel. So we're going to, we're going to go right to where we need to go. And, and I love that. I cling on to that moment because I love that tangible example you gave me of these two, two women. I'm picturing them at that table and I'm also just cringing and kind of just feeling it. But I, I hope the audience also like looks right now within yourself and, and finds that moment for you. We've all had one or more of those, or maybe right now there's somebody who needs to have one of those moments with you. Because to me, that's just a launching pad for for real change out of those really uncomfortable, hard to be honest moments. And, and here's what I would, you know, so practical stuff. We've all been in those situations and we live in organizations that aren't perfect. Maybe they're not even into the point where they believe that love is a business strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Or humanity. And, and you know, I, I would love to change DEI to H E-I, humanity, equity, and inclusion. Because oftentimes the systems we set up pit one group against another group and give the illusion that somebody is getting something that another person isn't. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I would ask your audience and anybody who's kind of sitting there sweating going, man, I know that, or I'm facing this, step back and ask, what are your values? If we say integrity is one of our values, then you have to look at what does integrity mean? You may not be skilled enough to speak up at that moment, but can you loop back around after you've thought about, I need to have a conversation around this. So example, um, had a training program, the HR person that set the training program up for six weeks, one of the leaders decided, you know, well, I only had it for three, I'm not doing it anymore send it in an email via the secretary. The HR person was really like, why couldn't she, you know, and I just think, I said, you know, I think you're something else is going on here. She said, what do you mean? I said, I think you're angry because she handled you. What do you mean handled me? She didn't pick up the phone. This person didn't pick up the phone call you and say, hey, I had a misunderstanding. I didn't know it was this. I'm really busy. You guys could have talked it out. What she did was she had the secretary send you an email. So that now what do you do? You can't go back to the secretary and say, hey, no, this is wrong because the secretary is just a messenger. And how often do we kill the messenger, right? Yeah. <laughs> Out of the deal. <laughs> and I sat there and I said, what you need to do is pick up the phone and call her and say, we need to talk this out. Not because you didn't, you had a misunderstanding of how long the program was, but because we're colleagues and because this was going to impact me, you didn't have the courtesy to pick up the phone and just tell me. 
It, those are the misses. Those are the moments. So when we talk about integrity, do as I say. You know, if I give you my word, I'm going to do it. If, if I'm going to treat you as a human being, if I'm going to respect you, then respect means that you have the courtesy to speak to someone. You have the courtesy to share your point. And I tell everybody, you may not know what to say or how to say it in a way that the person may say it. It may be able to, to understand it and accept it. Ask for forgiveness up front. Chris, I've really got something I have to tell you. I don't think I can say it in the right way, but I want you to hear my heart about it. And this is really important. And I'm willing to sit here and we need to have a conversation about this. Yeah. Because what you said was insensitive or how you treated me was disrespectful or I felt disrespected out of that. And I want you to understand what you did because I don't think you did it on purpose. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that is one of the most effective ways to have that conversation. And many times the people who have feedback to give typically don't want to have a conversation or in some cases don't want to have, I was just say typically, sometimes don't want to have a conversation or feel like a conversation is indicative of not accepting what I am telling you. Because if you come back and like, how, give me more, like, to, like, because when you're hearing news for the first time, that is truly sort of different than what you have been perceiving you've been doing. You might be curious about it. You might be curious, like you want to dig into it. When a person's like, I can't believe they're coming back with I can't believe they're questioning what I said. Like, and it turns into a situation where you might be painted as somebody who doesn't receive feedback well, even though you are receiving it well. You're just curious about like one, the the actual word. Like, was it one word? Was it this? Was it the way I said how? Like, right? Sometimes people want to dig into it. And that's always been something that I approach conversations with or try to approach conversations with, especially if I'm the one giving them feedback. It's like, no, we can sit down and talk as long as you need to. Like, let's work through it. Like, I'm not going to, you know, drop it off and run, like throw the bomb and leave. Um, but sometimes it's really difficult when you are, when you know you're coming into an uncomfortable conversation to be willing to have a conversation versus a one-sided, like, I'm just going to tell you how I felt and leave and let you work through it by yourself. Yeah, and, and here's why values for a company are so important, right? Mm -hmm. Or ground rules or boundaries or whatever your terminology yeah. is about it. Mm -hmm. Here at this company, we know that we're going to be human and that from time to time we may say things or do things that because we don't read minds and we're all focused on our own and ultimately, you know, I'm right because I'm addicted to being right and therefore I am right. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the perspective all of us come from. But the ground rules here say that if, if feedback is that feedback is a good thing and that you need to stay engaged in it. Now you have, you have permission to, you know, if, if I picked you at a wrong time, then we've got to circle back on it, but it's not okay not to get to the point where we can be okay with each other because we have to find a way in which we can have a working relationship and co-create what's going on. And when we harbor ill feelings, when we harbor things about people, when we start assigning that this person is intentionally inflicting pain on other individuals, then what we've done is we have taken that person, pushed them out of the organization and not embraced mm -hmm. them. And they are no longer included because I may not know why you're at a distance from me, but I definitely will feel when you are pushing me off to the side, when people are talking about me, when I'm being excluded, I can feel that every day, yeah. all day. And that's mm. the piece that I think is so important about having values, value statements, boundaries, and examples, stories mm -hmm. of when you get it right 
and stories of when you don't get it right so that people can see that, oh, wait a minute, this isn't about humanity. This is a skill issue. Our having yeah. a conversation really boils down to skill. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it just, it kind of draws, I think it's funny because it, it, we are, we all understand, I feel like everybody understands the fact that we're humans. Like everyone understands the fact that we make mistakes. We say things we don't mean, you know, all that. And somehow in the workplace, it's become this place where we can keep saying, oh, we're human. We make mistakes. Oh yeah. Embrace mistakes. And then yet our behaviors kind of indicate that you're not allowed to. And, and in fact, when things happen in a workplace, when we only get some of the information, mm-hmm. one side of the story, or just mm-hmm. our perspective, mm-hmm. as humans, we fill in all those blanks. Mm-hmm. We automatically say, oh, they must have been thinking this. They must be thinking this of me. They must be talking about me. And all these kind of thoughts fill our heads. And without that outlet of verifying and validating, something that we would do in our personal lives with people we you know, care about love and want to be around, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go to sleep at night. If I think that, you know, my best friend is thinking something about me or says something on Facebook, made a post. I'm like, is that about me? Is that like, I need to go ask, is that post about me? Because that's, that's messed up. But at work, at work, when someone says something or makes a comment in a meeting, we're somehow okay with just being like, that comment was probably about me. I'm not going to talk to him about it. I'm just going to live my life as if it was about me. And these things just snowball because yeah. that's how then you then you respond, you retaliate, you get passive aggressive, you start talking certain ways, and it just creeps into these relationships. And then between two people, then between groups, then between entire teams, and then be, and before you know it, this entire culture is just people smiling at each other, yeah. and every single person is thinking something differently of each other. I, that, to me, that blows my mind because, like, who doesn't want to work at a place that's with friends and with people they they get along with and love really like, who wouldn't want that you know like we we all want that and yet i don't know if we all kind of embrace the work that it takes to get there because we would rather shy away from those tough conversations um and kind of live in fear and sometimes it's not the employee's fault obviously it's obviously the the safety in the group and the in mm-hmm. the in the culture that's built by leaders mm-hmm. but but ultimately it blows my mind that more people don't want to tackle things the right way when we understand like like i open with the humanity of it all like we none of the nothing i just said is like mind-blowing to anybody like we all understand common human kind of fallible interaction and yet we don't kind of give each other that grace or that space um in our work lives and that that's this was constantly boggles my mind i just yeah well it's because we don't give permission in those places you know, we think the old way of thinking about work is, is you just come to work, do what you're told and keep your mouth shut and keep get collect your paycheck. Mm-hmm. When and that's that is how we think about it. Well, business has changed. You know, businesses don't last 50 years. Not, you know, they change they get bought. You know, if you start doing well, your company's going to get bought. Um, all kinds of things happen. And, and the fact that we expect people to be friends with each other, to care about each other, you know, the, what's that old saying that, you know, people say, don't bring your feelings into the workplace. How many of us still carry that? We, yeah, I know you're human, but I can't bring my friendship. I can't bring my admiration for you as a human being, as a person, as somebody I like, 
and I want to get to know, I don't, I don't, I can't bring that emotion into the workplace because then, you know, I'm, you know, not, not okay. Yeah. Men can't be emotional and say, Hey, you know, we need to talk. I'm angry. Oh, you can't be that. Women can't bring it. Oh, you're too emotional. You're not tough enough to be a leader. Blah, blah, blah. And so we've got all of this, this noise that sits there, but nobody really talks about it. Nobody says that's off limits, that this is what's on, you know, this is what we're about. Yeah. And make that statement. You don't mind saying that we're about making money. <laughs> make a statement that says yeah. we're about creating a place where people can excel. Yeah. yeah. Like when did when did we decide that we could pick and choose elements of humanity to accept and not accept in an environment? It's almost like I, I mean, I'm just noticing that real time right now. It's like we it's it's very common to keep saying things like, oh, we're just human. Oh, we all make mistakes, you know. And yet we very literally pick and choose a number of other human traits that would just be taboo, completely taboo to talk about bring up. If I if I had to set up a meeting just to tell you how you made me feel, people would be like, uh, do not waste business time, do not waste on the clock time to have this one-on-one -on -one about how they made you feel. And it's like, why not? We just said we're human and this matters. Like this matters to me and it, it should matter to the company, right? But you put structure in it. So we, we yeah. have to teach people how to do this. And it's the idea back of, you know, some companies are saying you have to be resilient. You have to, you know, if you listen to Brene, Brene Brown, it's all about the resilience. When I make a mistake, how do I come back? For redemption is the same thing. And so is it okay that a person can make a mistake, whether it's a business mistake, a mistake with a customer, they didn't run the process right, or I hurt your feelings, or I said something that was, um, insensitive, and I, I, I don't, I, I don't think most people are trying to be offensive. That they are, they can be very insensitive. So I choose that word carefully. But when do I get to come back and say, hey, you know, that that wasn't right, and that I actually can be open to feedback? Where do we set those ground rules? Where do we have that as a walking role model of what that looks like, from the CEO or the executive director in nonprofits all the way down of when I am wrong, when I've changed my mind, I actually come out and say, you know what? I changed my mind. I was given some information. I've thought about it again. Let's go. And you can start it on the business side and then roll it into how we treat each other. So get comfortable with the place that you can do it, which is business, and then move it into the other. I know so many great CEOs and I've been exposed to great CEOs that they purposely listen to what the rumor mill is. Most of us are trying to go, ah, don't, don't listen to the rumor mill. That's, you know, gossip is not a good thing. But they purposely listen to that so that they would understand the perspectives of what's going on in the workplace. Because we still put CEOs, C-suites, all of those executives on a pedestal and we just can't tell them the truth, right? But they can listen to the gossip. They can listen to what's wrong and interject and say, that's off limits. We are not doing that. We're not sure about this, but we are about this. And I want you to have the truth and I want you to understand exact, exactly directionally where we're going. So it is a practice that starts with, are you interested in engaging and making sure that people have the answers that they need, that they understand how we're gonna treat each other and that feedback is really important on all scales and that you model that. That's what changes the workplace. 
I'm curious what advice you give to 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 the modern leader because I think I feel like um, they're facing. I think leaders today are facing a very new and unique challenge. I guess as we talk about these things, as these are realities that that we have to face, and it's like it comes to those points where you know you can be a leader that that hears all this and you're like, great, I want to be empathetic. I want to be, you know, I want to build personal relationships. I want to be all those things, very human with my team. Um, and then you're like counterbalanced by this pressure that has to be kind of harsh on them. Like you just, there's no way around it. Like they're not mm -hmm. performing. They are misbehaving. They are letting people down. They're like all these things that are just a reality of a business. At the end of the day, outcomes and goals being missed. How do you coach this leader who, you know, is, is on kind of stuck between these worlds where they have to be the disciplinarian, but also try to build this trust and things like that. Um, trust. So trust comes in many levels, right? We trust each other all the time when it comes to someone is not living up to the performance. So that specific piece of it, if you've told the person along the way, if you were clear on what the goals were, um, you help them navigate the reality, which is what are the reasons why the obstacles, the options, those kinds of things. And then you ask them a very pointy. One of the questions I tell leaders all the time is ask people, how will I know this got done? Because I can't, I, I'm not going to be chasing you down. And you tell me that, oh, I'll have it to you Tuesday, but I'll also ping you to make sure we'll talk about it in the next one. And then I fail to do it then what you're having now is a conversation of you gave me your word and you didn't live up to your word. As an HR executive, I can tell you, people know when they're failing. What they do is they keep a smile on their face. They keep doing the same things harder, faster, more of it, because they think it's, I'm not doing it well enough. And they get, they dig themselves in a hole more and more and more. Even down to, I've had people who, you know, I had one guy who, when I was a young HR person say, you know, he was habitually late. So something really simple. We can't have you habitual late when you're working in a chemical factory. We need you to be here when the shift changes, right? There's some jobs you got to be here on time. And he told me, he says, I'm not going to be a slave to a clock. So, because he didn't own a clock and he wasn't getting up. And I said, well, you know, I can, I can honor and respect the fact that you don't want to have a watch and you don't want to have a clock, but you are hired to perform a job. Work is a contract for hire. When you break the terms and agreements of, of the contract, and one of them is you got to be here at eight o'clock in the morning, ready for work. Then what you're in, fa in fact telling me is you really don't want to work here. This is not the right place for you to work. Now you have a decision. These are the rules, terms, and agreements of the contract for hire. We'll pay you this amount. We treat you this way. And you have every right to choose not to live within this. That's an adult conversation versus coming in and saying, you have to come to work at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we're going to put you on a performance plan if you don't show up. And da, 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 because that's forcing. That's treating them like they don't have any ownership for their own behavior. So for leaders, if you treat people like they have ownership for their behavior, that you do trust them and you hired the right person. And if it doesn't work out, tell them and, you know, cut it, cut the core quick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I, go ahead. Can I upgrade my question a little bit? So what about the leader who's 
kind of cru- crucial conversation here is less around a very measurable performance issue, but more around a person's, you know, maybe subjective um, kind of attitude slash maybe how they're making other people feel um, issues around that, that sort of realm. Cause I think there's this, this, because culture is now important, mm-hmm. violating culture or causing harm to the culture is also part of your performance. However, assessment of that isn't always a metric or a KPI that can be said, Hey, we set this bar for you. You didn't make it that this conversation is not like you made a promise. You didn't keep it. Now you now we have to have this. Sometimes it's in this gray area where it's the leader. It's um, themselves that makes the assessment whether or not this person. So it gets personal. It gets very, um, does that make sense? Like kind of where I'm going with this? It's like, now, how do you, how does that leader navigate that where you're having to give disciplinary or, you know, somewhat, even if it's coming from a place of trust and support, it is ultimately you saying, Hey, I think you have a poor attitude or a poor approach or whatever it is that's less measurable. Um, so example, um, CEO had a CFO who fundamentally did not believe that people were the greatest asset. His job was to count the money to make sure that the processes work the way they're supposed to be. And then the profitability would show up. Remember early on, I said, you can be focused on profit or you can be focused on purpose. Both will make a lot of money, but they, they engender very different behaviors. The CFO was very, no, we, no we're not going to invest in people. No, we're not going to do this. No, you know, we, we need to cut these lines here because they're not, we're not going to spend the money to help these people get skilled up, all of those kinds of things. The CEO had to make a, and, and they went through the, look, this is the way we are here. This is our culture. This is how we, we don't treat people like, you know, widgets. We, you know, you got to stop talking about people, talking about people in such a way that they only think about the numbers. And it got to things like, you know, we're saying we're trying to make sure that our, our workplace mirrors our customer base. And so we need to have diversity in our workplace. And yet he set up a financial system or a budgeting system that basically said they'd have to fire somebody to make the numbers in the time frame that they were gonna do. Again, back to that widget mentality. The CEO had to have a conversation that says, you know what? I respect the fact that you are very good at what you do, but your values are not aligned with us. And you have a choice. This is how this company and this workplace is going to be. And you can choose to stay and adapt, or you can, I can help you find some place that really um, is more of a match from a values point of view. Those conversations that you're talking about and referencing to Jeff, generally the reason is, is that we're unclear and unsure of ourselves. What are the values that we're holding? Remember I said the person, you know, the woman who sent the note saying, I'm not gonna attend it. It wasn't about the note. It was about the impact of her not having enough respect to pick up the phone to say, hey, there was a misunderstanding. I didn't understand it. Can we work it out? That was the unacceptable behavior. That was the, her intent was not necessarily, I can say the person who sent the email or had her secretary send the email, she didn't intend to harm, but her 
going through the way we go through the 15 meetings we've got, hey, secretary, send that note to so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. The insensitiveness is what had to be discussed. So if you, if you want a, an environment where we are open to people being human and open to the fact that occasionally we're going to you know, not be sensitive, then you have to be open to hear that feedback. And if I find that you're not open to that feedback, not saying you have to always do something with it, but you gotta be open to hear it because once something is heard, can't be unheard. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, we all wanna be liked. We all wanna be accepted. We all wanna think that we're doing a great job. Words matter. They change your opinion over time. I've worked with, um, somebody asked me, would I take somebody who you know really, um, this was their last ditch effort and coach them. Over my years as a coach, what I've learned is, is yes, I'll take that person. The reason they wanted to take me to take the person is they wanted to have a defensible strategy that they had done everything they possibly could do to turn this person's performance around. The performance wasn't that they weren't hitting the numbers. The performance was, is that the person was biting everybody's head off, was coming across as this, you got to go do this. You got to go do that. They were telling jokes that, you know, not so, it wasn't that they were legally, you know, creating a hostile work environment, but it was certainly making people go, kind of icky. So there was Mm -hmm. nothing really clear in the performance, right? Yep. So you set it up to say, this is really what we're trying to get to. And you have this, these behaviors that aren't, we're going to give you a coach. That's what they said. And the person said, well, you know, I'll take the coach, but she can't talk to anybody, the board, nobody in this organization. And I said, let me talk to him. I did. I said, let me help you understand something. I'm not saying that you'd lie to me, but I do think that your perception and your perspective of what's going on, you're going to give it to me that you're doing it right. And it's not what you intend to do that is the problem. Your intention is to be a good person. The impact of how you behave is the problem. And that's a skill you need to learn. So if you want to stay here, then the skill you have to learn is to understand the impact of your behavior on other individuals and adjust that. You may not, I think we sometimes want to find that 10, you know, if you just do these one, two, three things, it's all going to go away. This stuff is work. This stuff is about learning. You got to try it. You got to get back on the horse when you make a mistake. You got to ask forgiveness. Then you got to change your behavior. Redemption is about changing your behavior, up-leveling your your behavior so that you're not making the same mistakes over and over and over again. That's the piece that we don't want. You know, we want people to be, oh, I just want to tell you one time and then you're fixed. Doesn't work that way. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Denise, uh, I wanted to make sure that I also had time to kind of talk about a few of the things that you have going on. I, can you tell us a little bit about your podcast and your book and, and really, you know, anything else that you'd like to share for us in terms of, of what you're putting out in the world here? Um, the podcast is called Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. You can get it on 
all the podcasts or where you hear your podcasts or whatnot. The intent of it is, is to get other people to talk about the, the topic of how do we bring humanity into the workplace, but more importantly, how do we dismantle the kinds of thinking and the systems that we have in place that keep us kind of lockstep into this? How are, you know, if, if you know, we're not going to get rid of racism in, in a day. And so how do you, one of my podcasts was from a gentleman who for 40 years, he was the one, the only, and the, the first. And he had to endure insensitive comments, actual racist comments, systemic racism, the whole thing. How did he continue to succeed and be happy, build a career, life? And how did he step up so that he felt he was courageous and protecting himself? And so these are stories from people who, are willing to share their journey along the way. How do you build a career when you're a single mother? How do you, um, when you get feedback as women that, you know, well, you're, you know, not tough enough and, you know, you're not, da, da, da. how do you actually listen to that and then apply development to it? So that's the purpose of it. And the podcast has turned into something really fabulous because now I'm packaging it and giving it to my clients as lessons learned. Um, and it comes out every Thursday. So it's turned into this really beautiful thing. I'm not looking for a lot of people, but it's turned into these conversations that people can actually get educational material from it. Hmm. The book, which is called Remarkable Leadership Lessons, Change Results One Conversation at a Time, is just that. It's a series of stories and conversations. You can read one, you can read many of them, but they're meant to they take one conversation and you can really dig deep into what was going on and what can I do differently and how was that thinking and how do I matter and how does my behavior matter and if I'm and how do I change it to get more and more and more. Obviously, I do training, coaching with executives um, around these ideas of how do we create these better workplaces and people can find me on LinkedIn. They can, you know, that's probably the easiest way. It's just to look for Denise Cooper LinkedIn and my website is remarkableleadershiplessons.com. So I'm always open for a conversation. Absolutely, and, and a good one at that. So thank you so much, Denise. Thank you for this conversation. It's given me a lot to think about, um, but I also think that those practical examples and your perspective has really helped the audience, I think, further their understanding of what this what a, what a real kind of humane workplace might look like and i hope we all found something that they can take back and, and actually go and try and apply um around around themselves so thank you so much for that insight and the time today denise thank you guys for the opportunity thank you absolutely and to our listeners as always we are posting new episodes every wednesday we hope you enjoyed this one if you did please do leave us a like feed us uh, some feedback review and share it with your friends as always please also check out our book love is a business strategy and with that i will sign off and see you all next week thank you chris thank you denise Have a good